Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to share with you in uh, public worship and fellowship around God's Word. And uh, I need to apologize. Um, I'm struggling with some health issues. Um, but more importantly, I need to apologize. Uh, the sermon might be a bit heavy because it's uh, on a very complicated uh, doctrine of Scripture. And um, that's why we need to pray and ask God to uh, speak to us through his word. And uh, for the prayer, I want to read a few verses from the end of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Heavenly Father, we want to come humbly under your word, its truth and its teaching, and its significance and meaning and purpose for our lives. Speak to us through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In your bulletin today, you should have uh, an outline. I can find mine. Two pages, and um, that will be helpful if you have it in front of you. And uh, Pastor Eugene, at the beginning, encouraged us to pray for the wider family of Grace Point, and I'd like to encourage us to pray for Pastor Eugene, because he and his family um, are facing some uh, health issues at the moment. He's, he's struggling with his voice this morning as well. And I want to uh, share a story that Pastor Eugene reminded me not so long ago, and he likes to remind me of this story, that when I was his pastor at WS, West Sydney Chinese Christian Church, and he was preaching on a series, and of course I'd forgotten what the series was, and uh, the passage that was assigned to him was difficult, and he asked if he could choose another passage, and I probably kept a straight face and said, no, that's a good discipline, you preach on what, what's scheduled. So he reminded me what the passage was, because I'd forgotten. That's uh, almost 30 years ago. The passage was 1 John 4, 1 to 6. And I want to read this. I want to read verses 2 and 3 of that passage, because it has some connection uh, with our topic today, the virgin birth of Jesus. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. It's talking about Jesus becoming a real human being, taking on flesh. Being a believer, having faith as a Christian is not having blind faith. A Christian believes and appropriates the promises of God, the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the promise of peace with God, and the promise of new life as a son or daughter of God. And we are currently currently preaching through the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is a succinct summary of Christian faith. And the word faith in this context means 
the content, content of what we believe. That is why the creed commences with the words, I believe. And one of our songs was a song, I believe, based on the creed. And today we're going to look at the second and third parts. In Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But primarily we're going to focus on the second part of that, what we call the virgin birth of Jesus. And for those of you who have done Biology 101, I would ask you to raise your hands if you have not done Biology 101. You know, of course, the birth was normal. We're talking about the virgin conception of Jesus. But in English, we always call it the virgin birth. Now, let's note that this uh, section of the Creed highlights Jesus as divine. Jesus as equal of God. He's referred to our Lord. And his relationship with God the Father is that as son. And of course, in other creeds, this will be uh, explained uh, uh, in more detail. Where other creeds talk about eternal sonship. He was eternally the son of God. In other words, there was not a moment when he was not the son of God. There was not a moment when he was born the son of God. He's the eternal son of God. And the creed also gives his full name, Jesus Christ, or in our NIV Bibles, Jesus the Messiah. And that refers to the fact that he is both saviour, and Messiah or Christ means the anointed one, the anointed one sent by God to accomplish God's uh, purpose and plan. One of the challenges, uh, if you are in uh, management or if you're a pastor, one of the challenges is to write a reference for someone. Because how do you write a reference? Damned if you do, damned if you don't. What do you put in? What do you leave out? And then when we interview people for a position, we look at their references. But wise people don't look just at what is included in the reference they look more importantly at what is excluded in the reference. Pastor Eugene gave a short explanation about the importance of catechisms. And one of the most um, uh, important reform catechisms in the 16th century is called the Heidelberg Catechism. And question 22 says, what then is necessary for a Christian to believe? And the answer for question 22 is, all that is promised in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. And I should explain, Catholic comes from two Greek words, um, cat, which means uh, from or about, and holos, uh, or. So Catholic means according to, to the whole, which means universal. And then question 23, where, what are these articles? And the answer to question 23 is the Apostles' Creed. And then in the Heidelberg Catechism, the Apostles' Creed is, is given in full, and then subsequent questions go for different points of uh, the Apostles' Creed. And it's questions 35 and 36 of the Heidelberg Catechism refer specifically to the virgin birth of Jesus. 
Now, we are going through the New City Catechism, and I looked it up. It doesn't refer to the virgin birth. So that's a bit of homework for all of us. Why doesn't it refer to the virgin birth? And this helps us to ask the question, why was the virgin birth included in the Apostles' Creed? If you are not aware of this, there are many people around the world, including Australia, who call themselves Christians, but they don't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. And the main reason for this is they don't believe in the miracles in the Bible. And there are even some so-called biblical scholars who seek to remove all the miracle accounts from the Gospels. Uh, I think if you do a word count in Mark's Gospel, 30% deals directly with a miracle. So if you remove the miracles, you remove 30% of Mark's Gospel. And this, this process is called demythologizing. They say the Gospels need to be demythologized. We need to remove the reference to the miracles because miracles can't happen so that we can get to the heart of the Gospel message. What really counts is the message. But, of course, the message was given in a context and the message cannot be separated from its context. And clearly the miracles are an integral part of Jesus' ministry and his proclamation. And for us, the virgin birth of Jesus points both to his divinity as well as to his uh, humanity. And you can see that um, uh, we're looking at a few points. We're going to look at the testimony of Scripture, and then the testimony of the early church, and then the theological significance of, of the virgin birth. Sam read for us two passages, the Matthew 1, 18-25, and the Luke 1, uh, 26-38. I won't read these passages again, but I will read some of the verses to see how they directly point to the virgin birth. Look at the Matthew passage, for example. Um, it's mentioned several times um, that she did not have sexual union with Joseph or anyone else. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they had come together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And so from Joseph's point of view, it wasn't him. It must have been somebody else, and he was going to uh, quietly divorce her. Uh, and were he to do that, uh, that, that would mean she wouldn't be exposed to public disgrace. It, it was a, a kind way of dealing with the situation. But, of course, the angel told him... Uh, that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from these sins. And then there's a quotation, quotation from Isaiah 7, verse 14. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. So you have a human child born... But given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it points both to his humanity as well as his divinity. And then the last few verses re uh, reaffirm that there was no sexual union between Joseph and Mary. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate 
their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. And in the second passage, the Luke passage, Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38, the word virgin is mentioned several times. God sent an angel, Gabriel, to a virgin. She was pledged to be married. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel said, you will conceive and give birth and to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, since I'm a virgin? The the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So it's quite clear from those two passages um, that Mary was a virgin, and the birth of Jesus was a miracle performed by God through the Holy Spirit. But there are some other passages uh, which uh, impinge on the virgin birth. One is Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. The beginning of Matthew's gospel uh, lists the genealogy, that is the ancestors of Jesus. And the very first verse says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then verse 16, pay attention very carefully to the wording. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, who's Joseph? The husband of Mary. Normally women are not put in these genealogies. The husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. See, the verse doesn't say Joseph is the father. The verse points out that Mary is the mother. So indirectly, it's affirming the virgin birth. There is another genealogy of Jesus. It's on Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. And this is at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. And uh, before this genealogy is listed, verse 23 says, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, which is a polite way of saying he really wasn't the son of Joseph, but legally he was the son of Joseph. And then in Galatians 4, verse 4, uh, the Apostle Paul said, When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now that's important, uh, because Paul is affirming, indirectly, the virgin birth, uh, affirming that Jesus was born as uh, a true human being, a true descendant of David, a true descendant of uh, Abraham, and therefore uh, uh, could fulfill God's purpose for the salvation of the world. And then one other verse I want to bring to our attention is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator between the creator and the creature. Mediator between God and human beings. It has to be a man. Jesus was born as a man. So that's our first point, the Testament of Scripture. And I think it's quite 
quite considerable. Um, and the bottom line is, do you believe scripture or you don't? And that's the touchstone of faith. If it's God's word, it's true. And as Pastor Eugene pointed out, when Sam finished the Bible readings, he said, this is the word of God. So that's, that's the real issue. Do we believe that the Bible is the word of God? Secondly, we want to look just briefly at the testimony of the early church. Uh, if we look at early church history, um, there was no one who doubted the virgin birth. And I've just put some, some names here. Um, won't mean much to many of you. Ignatius in the early 2nd century, Justin Martyr, mid-2nd century, Irenaeus towards the, towards the end of the 2nd uh, century. Um, and in many of their works, they talk about the virgin birth. But I want to talk about the Nicene Creed, uh, which is in your handout. It's on this. It's on the bottom of the first page. Uh, this was put together in the year 325, Council of Nicaea. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary uh, and was made human. So the first part of that is talking about Jesus um, is, is equal with the Father in terms of his divinity, and the second part talks about Jesus becoming uh, a human being, and the technical term for this is incarnation, and there's a direct reference to the Virgin Mary. And then over the page of the outline, I've given for us the relevant clause of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which all ministers of the Presbyterian Church and all elders of the Presbyterian Church uh, have to sign uh, that they agree with. The Son of God the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. That's a bit of a mouthful, and you probably need to read that several times to understand it, but it's trying to cover all bases and trying to remove all doubt that Jesus is God, he's not divine. Um, I think it's the Mormons will say, based on their understanding of John 1, oh, you can call Jesus Lord. Jesus is divine, but he's not God. You know, in other words, he's, he's like God and slightly below God. But the, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Nicene Creed, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is equal with God in terms of his divinity, but at the same time, he's a genuine uh, human being born of the Virgin Mary. So we had the testimony of the early church. Scripture is quite clear 
the early church is quite clear, nobody doubted. But of course, people who don't want to take truth think of other options. So uh, I think it's a Roman uh, author, Celsus, said that Jesus was the son of Mary uh, and a Roman soldier, and the name given is Pantera. And if you look at John chapter 8, it's a big discourse, uh, discussion between Jesus and uh, Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and Jesus said they were, they were not the true descendants of Abraham, they're descendants of their true father who was the devil, a liar, and, and in verse 86, they, they retort back, they answer back to Jesus, they believe that he was the son of a, of a Samaritan. In other words, uh, they believe that you know, Mary uh, got pregnant through a Samaritan. All right, so we looked at the biblical background, we looked at the testimony of the early church, and let me now briefly share some, something about the theological significance. It's in the creed for a purpose. It's in the Bible for a purpose. And now we'll try and get our heads around the purpose. Now, if Pastor Kamal were here, he would certainly point out the first point, that the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, were involved in the birth of Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Uh, Luke 1.32, he will be great and will be called uh, the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. But it's a lot clearer in verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on, on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. If you've ever thought about creation from a biblical point of view, it's not so obvious uh, in Genesis, but you need to read Genesis together with John 1 and other passages of Scripture. The Trinity were involved in creation. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' entry into the world, his birth into the world, we have the three persons of the Trinity involved. And then, of course, what's significant were the names that were given to Jesus. Jesus means saviour. Emmanuel means uh, God with us. Of course, he was called Son of God. And I've given the, I think I've given the, passage, the passages of Matthew 121, Matthew 123, Matthew 121, Jesus, Matthew 123, Emmanuel, Luke 135, Son of God. But more importantly, we need to see this event, the virgin birth of Jesus, in the context of God's dealing with humankind, what we call salvation history, because Jesus was called the son of David, and he was called Messiah, Christ, or the anointed one, to carry out uh, God's um, plan. Matthew 1.20, Joseph, son of David, that's repeated in Luke 1.27, Matthew 1.18, uh, he's called the Messiah of Christ, the anointed one. So I've already mentioned two genealogies of uh, Jesus, the Matthew one uh, goes all the way back to Abraham, and the emphasis in the Matthew one is that Jesus is the son of David, and the one that uh, was prophesied that would come, that would set up God's kingdom. And if you've looked or studied the genealogy in Matthew's gospel, there are three sets of 14 groupings of names, three sets uh, of 14. And um, when you write the word David in, in Hebrew, in Hebrew uh, alphabet, so it's a D and a, a D and a W and a, and a D, um, just, just like um, 
Do you guys know Roman numerals? What's M in Roman numerals? What's M? What's M? V is five, right? You know V is five. What's C? What is C? So what's M? You're guessing or you know? <laughs> so the Hebrew alphabet, the, the letters also mean numbers. So uh, if you look at the, the word David, it adds up to 14. So the three lots are 14. So what I'm trying to say is there's in no uncertain terms, Matthew is saying Jesus is the son of David and he's the one that's going to fulfill God's plan. But of course, he wasn't physically, genetically, the son of Joseph, but legally he was the son of Joseph. And then if we look at the genealogy in Luke's gospel, um, all the women here will be, ha be happy because it's actually an indirect way of, of giving the genealogy of Mary because Mary was a descendant of David. So both on Joseph's side and Mary's side, Jesus was a descendant of David. And that's important in terms of salvation or God's plan uh, for the salvation. Um, so I've mentioned the word incarnation. What that means is Jesus was truly God and truly man. So uh, I said it's not good enough to say uh, Jesus was divine. That is, he, he, could, he could perform miracles and we should pray to him. He will answer our prayers. He's divine. Divine is not the same as truly God. And he was truly man. He didn't appear to be a man. And there were many heresies uh, in the early church which they could, couldn't take it that Jesus was a man. They just said he looked like a man. He talked like a man, you know. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, is it a duck? Well, the Bible's, in no uncertain terms, talks about the incarnation. So it's John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. God come in the flesh and... Um, so I think some of you have done Biology 101. Yeah. You know what a fallopian tube is? Hmm? You do? Ask the doctor what the fallopian tube is. Um, Jesus was not biologically a descendant of Joseph. But he was clearly human uh, because he was born of a woman. Which means that unlike all of us who are descendants of Adam, we're all born with a, uh, a tendency to sin. Because Jesus was not biologically a descendant of Joseph and therefore not biologically a descendant of Adam, he was without original sin. And this is very important for the work of Jesus on the cross, what we call the atonement. Atonement means at one meant, how we can become at one with God. We can be reconciled with God. We can have peace with God. Only a man could take the punishment for the sin of man. Not an animal, not an angel, not precious uh, metals, uh, um, not treasure. But the man needs to be sinless. 
And then thirdly, if Jesus were not divine, his death on the cross would only be the substitute for one person. Who has ever read A Tale of Two Cities? Tale of Two Cities? No one. <laughs> Seen the movie? Tale of Two Cities? Oh, where have you been? Oh, you, it's, all Netflix, it's all Netflix, is it? Anyway, in The Tale of Two Cities, it's a love triangle. Do you, do you like love triangles? <laughs> and can you guess, guess the two cities? The two cities are London and Paris, around about the time of the French Revolution, so it's early 19th century. And you have, an, you have a, what is portrayed as a nasty person, or not a very nice person, contrasted with a very, very nice person. And this is a lesson for some of you, maybe. The nasty person really, really loved this lady and was willing to give his life so that she could be with the man that she loved. Doesn't that make for a good movie? And so what he did was he, 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 he bribed the prison guards and um, uh, took the man out and uh, arranged him to escape to England, and he took his place. He did a swap. And as he went up to the guillotine, the gallows, nobody noticed that there was a swap. And, uh, and until at the last moment, try, someone, someone tried try to call out, there's a swap. Um, but if you read the book, it ends with, it's a far, far better thing than I have ever done. It's, it's famous English literature. But that's one person dying in substitute for another person. One for one. And we've seen this in other contexts. But this is a famous one from, from uh, English literature. But if Jesus were not divine, his death on the cross as a man would only be for one person. But because, it's, it was because he, he is divine, his death is sufficient for all persons. It's a very serious Sunday today. Question 27 of the Catechism. Are all people just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? You might have been surprised. The answer was no, only those who elected. So Jesus' death, because he was divine, would be sufficient for all people, but only made available for those who elect. And that's something you might like to think about. So let me just go through those three things again. Only a man could take the punishment for sin. Uh, and that man had to be sinless, otherwise the sacrifice would not be acceptable. And if Jesus were not divine, his death would only be the substitute for one person. So we're looking at the theological significance of the virgin birth. Now, although the Apostle Paul doesn't mention the virgin birth per se, he's clearly aware of it. And if you look at Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21, he, he refers to Jesus as the second Adam. And that's also um, uh, repeated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. So you need to think of two Adams. The original Adam is the head of one family, the family of mankind, humankind. And then Jesus, the second Adam, the head 
of another family, that is, sons and, daughter, sons and daughters of God, Jew and Gentile. And if you want to get technical, the, the theologians call this federal head. Federal head, either Adam or Jesus, the second Adam. Let me read the Corinthians passage. It says 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 20 to 22. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits are those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So this phrase, in Christ, we find in Paul's epistles again and again, and it's a very, very, very important phrase. Um, it's, it refers to those, uh, going back to question 27 of the catechism, no, only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith which is the same way of saying who are in Christ and Christ is in them, which means they believe in Jesus, they have surrendered their lives to Jesus, they have taken Jesus on board and made him Lord and Saviour of their lives. Now, you might be here this morning, you, you haven't yet made that step, um, and this sermon is on a, quite a complicated topic, but I hope it will, it will get you thinking about... Um, are you a descendant of the original Adam or are you part of the family of Jesus, the second Adam? Now, I want to read, uh, almost in closing, uh, a verse which perhaps is a little bit out of left field, at least that doesn't, um, doesn't often get referred to. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4 God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his great, very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. I think scholars will, will, will differ as to what this verse means but it could be hinting that because believers are united with Christ, because believers are in Christ, somehow they share in Christ's divinity. It doesn't mean they become gods, uh, but it means they, uh, they are raised to become, uh, in some way, like Christ. And uh, there is the interesting question... Would the incarnation have taken place irrespective of the sin of Adam and Eve, irrespective of the fall? And some theologians have thought uh, God had planned the incarnation because he had created man, and man was uh, uh, God's vice regent to manage the world and to expand the Garden of Eden to uh, encompass the whole, the whole world. And at one point of time, God would send his son, and because he's a human being, somehow human beings could share in, in, in God's divine nature in some way. And I think that means eternal life. Now, your head is probably spinning. And if your head is not spinning, maybe you're not paying attention. And if your head is spinning, that's good. Because there must be some application for this. And that's why I began by reading those verses from Romans 11. 
the more we, we know God through the scriptures and through God's interaction in our personal lives, and the more we understand God's plan for salvation, the more we should marvel and give thanks to God for having this plan of sending his eternal son through the virgin birth for our salvation. Who else would have thought of such a means to tick all the boxes, a man to take the punishment, a sinless man, but a man who was also uh, God? I want to conclude with the question that you see uh, in your outline, the Christ of history or the Christ of faith. This is a false dichotomy that was made by certain scholars because what, what they would say is um, we don't really know much about the real Christ historically. It's, it's sort of like, um, uh, do you know who Julius Caesar is? Julius Caesar? See, the, the real question is, did Julius Caesar cross the Rubicon? Does that mean anything to anyone? Did Julius Caesar cross the Rubicon? You could Google that. You'll learn something. Rubicon is a river, and it was, it was a decisive move that Caesar did at a time of a battle. But there's no one that doubts that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. But where, where is the documentary evidence? So critical scholars say, well, we, we, we can't know much about the real Jesus from the Gospels because uh, we, we, we can't take the, uh, the miracles as true, this, that, and the other. And, and, and what people believe is that Jesus is the faith, the Jesus they want to believe in. That's a false dichotomy. Because the Christ of faith is the Christ of the Bible and therefore the Christ of history. And to do away with the virgin birth means not to accept the testimony of Scripture concerning Christ. Understanding the significance of virgin birth makes us marvel at God's plan for the salvation of the world. Well, I want to, I want to conclude um, by looking at the... looking at the catechism again. Are all people just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? No. Only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. Um, a certain Australian died last week in the Vatican. You know who that was? George Pell. I know you watch Netflix, I know you don't watch news, and I know you don't read the newspaper. Um, no, that's, I'm exaggerating, of course. And what they're doing for George Pell is they're doing a requiem mass. And if you look at the wording, they're praying for the repose of the soul of George Pell. In Roman Catholic theology, there's no guarantee you go to heaven when you die, even if you're a cardinal, even if you're a pope. I think the same was for Pope Benedict. There's no guarantee. But the gospel and the promises of God are true because we say John 3.16, for God so loved the world, we can say, for God so loved Joe Mock, or put in your own name. If it's personally true for you, then we have, we have, we have salvation in here and now. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, 
but have, have in the here and now. And that was one of the key doctrines of the Reformation, the assurance of salvation. Why? Because it's all done by God. It's all by grace. And God's marvelous plan, which our, our minds are, are boggling over because we're coming to grips with the reality and the significance and the fact of the virgin birth. And sadly, our, our friends with traditional Roman Catholic theology, they do, not have, they do not have assurance of salvation. And, and I began with those verses from Romans 11. And it reflects what Pastor Eugene said. No one would be saved if God didn't elect. It's out of God's grace, God's mercy, and God's plan. And in the words of the angel um, to Mary, what God says will never cease to come to pass. So uh, I encourage you to hold on to the promises of God. Uh, as we, we, we begin the year 2023, uh, what lies ahead for us, what challenges, what opportunities, what struggles. God has a plan for us. As God had a plan for Jesus, God had a plan for us. God bless us all. Amen.